Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I'd like to now introduce our guest speaker. Speaking on his story, steps 1 to 12, Adam from Harrison, New Jersey. Hi, everybody. My name is Adam Andrick. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hmm. Very interesting week this week. Um, I uh, I don't know. Last week I thought I was fine. I thought everything was cool. You know, everything's going smooth. Work is going good. All my relationships seem to be doing well. And a really weird thought came Friday, but it went away. And I went into a meeting, and it went away. I woke up Saturday morning, stark raving insane, you know. And um, I did what I needed to do that day, you know. And I uh, that afternoon, I went and spoke to some friends I have, and uh, I started to write some inventory on it. And what I had realized that I had been slacking off on my inventory, which I kind of knew. You know, I knew it because I hadn't written anything, you know, but I didn't realize the uh, the consequences of that, you know, at the time I was doing it. Um, I uh, somebody actually Jamo said a line recently to me, and it it sticks with me all the time now, and it's uh, being powerless over alcohol is not my problem. My problem is my addiction to self-will. And, uh, and it just, it slammed me right between the eyes. You know, because that's me. You know, alcohol had, you know, the problem with alcohol has been removed. The 10-step promises have come true in my life. I've ceased fighting everything and everyone, even alcohol. You know, I've been restored to sanity. I've been, I've recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. But you know what? <laughs> I ain't well. <laughs> um, you know, it, that area of my life is okay. It's great. You know, it's not an issue. Um, that's not to say that it couldn't become one someday, you know, tonight, tomorrow, whenever. But, you know, the the everyday problems in my recovery are really not alcohol-related. Um but that's just where I'm at today. Um, you know, I, I, I find that if I have to speak, I get current first. You know, um, I'm the oldest of three boys. Um, I'm a byproduct of the 60s. Um, my father's only 20 years older than me. I was born in 1969. Um, I lived in a teepee. I lived on a commune. Um, I lived in the back of a school bus. You know, um, 
I got pictures of me when I was five years old with blonde hair down to the middle of my back running around butt naked. You know, my mom seen fit to show every girlfriend that I've ever brought home. You know. <laughs> you know, um, being a small child in my house was awesome. You know, it was a lot of fun. Um, because my parents were kids, you know. Um, they knew how to relate to kids, you know. Um, it was normal in my household to party, you know. Um, it was acceptable, you know. It was it was the 70s, you know. Uh, you know, living in Northern California, you know. Um, you know, it's probably the only time I'll say this throughout the whole pitch, but um, I drank with my father and I smoked pot with my mother. You know, that's my only drug reference, but that just shows you where I came from. You know, um, and my mom is in the, uh, she's in the rooms today. My father belongs in some kind of fellowship, you know, probably Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, but I can't really, you know, he doesn't think he has a problem. You know, he lives under a bridge somewhere in Alaska, you know, or Hawaii or California, wherever he is at this time of year, I don't know. Um, and he believes he's reliving his childhood and he's having a good time, you know, so whatever. None of this has anything to do with me being an alcoholic, you know. This stuff may have contributed to my unmanageability, my, my inability to function in life, you know, and, and, and have healthy relationships and, and get a job and pay bills and, you know, and all this stuff. But it really has nothing to do with my alcoholism, you know. Yeah, they, they taught me a lot of things, but you know what? I'm an alcoholic because when I put booze in my system, I can't guarantee when I'm going to stop. You know, I, um, I may be able to go out and have two drinks. I've done it, you know. But then I can go out and say I'm going to have two drinks and drink 30. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, Damn. Earlier this evening, I, uh, I thought of a great story from my past related to craving, and it just, like, flew out of my head, you know. But whatever. Oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> it flew back in. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was about, uh, I guess, 19 years old. And um, at this point in my life and uh, my drinking career, I, I thought it more, um, more efficient to live on the streets, you know. It was much easier to drink the way that I drank and, and do the things that I like to do if I didn't have a house to go to, you know, um, that I didn't have to pay bills and waste my money on, you know, normal society-oriented stuff. Um, so I, I go out this one night, or this one afternoon, actually, and start drinking, you know, by that night, I hit the I hit the bar. I bump into my dad. You know, we have a couple of drinks together. I hit another place that I liked. I ended up eventually at this keg party, and um, I grew up in a college town, so it was normal just to walk into a stranger's house, pay two bucks, and get a cup. You know, um, it wasn't that strange. Um, I end up at this keg party. I I don't know anybody there, and the last thing I really remember, I was sitting at a table. Doing uh, playing quarters for tequila, and um, 
I remember briefly wandering into the backyard towards my bicycle. Um, I thought that if I rode a bike, I wouldn't get a DWI. So I, I rode a bike. I never got my license until I was like 25. <clears throat> but I got on my bike, and it was the last thing I remember. I wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning in the drunk tank. Okay. And they, you know, they made me blow into the tube to see if they could release me because you got to be legal limit before they release you. And I blew a .20 at 7 in the morning. They kept me for another couple hours or whatever until that wore down, and I got to point one zero or whatever the legal, legal limit was at the time, and they released me. The first thing that crossed my mind when I hit the sunlight was, where's my bottle? That was the first thing that hit my mind. I stuck my thumb out. I'm 40 miles from my house out at the county jail. Stuck my thumb out. I hitchhiked home, and I hit that bottle. First thing, without question. That's the way I drink, you know. When booze is in my system, it, it, it does to me. I, I don't choose it. I don't decide when I'm going to drink. It, it takes over, you know. The mental obsession, on the other hand, is a little more uh, wacky for me, you know. Um, living on the streets, I, I did a lot of things that you probably shouldn't do. Um, and one of those things landed me in... Uh, in state prison for about two years and the entire time that I was locked up I uh, I wrote letters to rehabs to judges to lawyers to my girlfriend to anybody who would listen you know I got a problem with alcohol I got a problem with drugs here I need to go to a rehab you know I said it in court you know don't send it, don't send me away I'm a I'm an alcoholic I'm not a criminal you know I got busted you know, for my own stuff, you know, it was my own personal use. It wasn't because I was this, you know, hardened criminal or, or whatever. For 19 months, I'm locked up. I'm writing letters constantly. I was released, and within 20 minutes, I had a six-pack. Within two hours, I was exactly where I was when I got locked up. And that night, I slept under a bridge. Now, on... Um, what does it say, um, that we can't remember the pain and humiliation of even a week or a month ago? Well, I just got locked up. You know, I just got released 20 minutes ago, and I forgot. You know, um, that's the way my brain works. You know, it's not, it says it in the literature, you know, we don't have the same defense from keeping our hands off a hot stove. You know, that's me. That's the way I relate to alcohol. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite speakers, Earl, um, Earl H., always says that, um, oh, God, brain fart again. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, forget it. It wasn't that important then. I'm trying to steal a quote. Well, back to where I was. Okay. I, um, I picked up my first drink when I was about 13 years old. Um, well, my first conscious drink to go out and party with my friends. I had many a drink before that. You know, my dad gave me beer in my bottle and watched me stumble around, and everybody thought it was funny. Um, but my first conscious drink was at 13. And uh, I blacked out that night. We got a gallon of wine and uh, five beers, and uh, I drank all five beers and as much of the wine as I could. 
You know, nobody wanted to drink the beers. They said it tasted like crap. And I was like, so? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not drinking for taste. I don't drink for taste. I drink for effect. Um, I blacked out that night. I woke up with the most wickedest hangover you could imagine in a puddle of red wine and Doritos. And my first thought was, wow, I can't wait till next week. Um, I had to move at that point. My uh, that that week Wednesday I moved, um, and so I didn't get the opportunity to drink the next week because when I moved to this new town I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to get it. I'm 13 years old, you know. Um, but as soon as I found it, I drank again. Um, by the time I turned 15 or 16 or whatever it was. I had made my way back to California to my old friends and uh, all the people that I grew up with. And from that point on, I drank on Friday and Saturday nights. And Friday and Saturday night, within a very short period of time, became Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then Thursday, because Thursday is the beginning of the weekend. you know. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then I have to drink on Monday because it's the end of the weekend. you know. So we got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And... Wednesday, that's hump day. You know. The only problem was with this, I, I don't identify with daily drinkers because it took me another three or four years to find an excuse for Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I came to New Jersey and Hartley's in uh, North Arlington had a 50 cent mug night on Tuesday. So eventually I became a daily drinker. Yeah. You know. Um I became a round-the-clock drinker, you know, but I also was, I also didn't believe myself powerless, you know. I believed myself an alcoholic, but I didn't understand what that meant, you know. I thought it was some kind of a, a, a reason for the way I drink or, or, or a badge, you know. It's like, I'm an alcoholic. That's why me and my buddy get a case of beer before we go to a keg party. You know, it's some kind of cool thing or some shit, you know. And um, I had no idea what it meant, you know. So for a long time, yeah, I said I was an alcoholic, but I didn't understand what powerless meant. I didn't understand that the booze was dictating it. You know, and that my warped brain was dictating it. You know, I thought I was having fun because I never tried to stop. You know, I was one of these people who never really tried to control it. You know, I just said, you know, why work when you can drink? You know, it made sense to me. You know, I like waking up in the morning and going down to the park, laying out my blanket, turning on my radio and proceeding to party. You know, that's the way I lived, you know. So, so. The whole job and the apartment and none of that stuff really, really made any sense to me. But fortunately, you know, they, they say that geographic cures don't work. For me, it did. For me, it did because it didn't work the way it's, it was planned, but it did work. Because I had to leave California. Because for me, the lifestyle in California, it was too easy for me to do what I was doing, you know, um, I'm a local in a college town. I know where to get anything. You know, I don't have to work. I know all the places to crash where I can be safe, you know, and not have any problems. I know where to get food. I know how to drink. 
I'm fine. I could have stayed there forever, you know, or until I died, you know. I moved to the East Coast, and people here did something weird. They went to work, you know. They had apartments, and they paid bills, and I didn't know how to function in that kind of society. And it, it didn't take very long for me to kind of bottom out. I, I wasn't able to live the type of lifestyle I was living. Um, fortunately, I found a girl who had a car accident settlement and $100,000 to blow. So that, that lasted me a little while. But it didn't last long enough. And on in May of like 92, I guess, or 93... Um, I was on parole. I had gotten like two, maybe three dirty tests. I had gotten a shoplifting charge and a DWI. And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm in trouble. Um, I go to my parole officer and I say, I need help. You know, I got to go to rehab. I got a problem. And, and, and deep down inside, I believed this. You know, I knew I had a problem. I just didn't really think it was the alcohol and the drugs, you know. Or I did, but I didn't, you know, and it was it was all twisted. So I um, I ended up eventually making it into the Salvation Army, you know, after a long drawn out thing with the TC program that I wouldn't go into, and uh, I ended up in the Sally. And one of the first things that was said to me, and it saved my life, was um, you got to get God to get sober. You got to get a higher power to get sober. And at that point, I'm a raging anti-Catholic, anti-religion, you know. I, I hated religion with a passion at that point. Um, you know, I believed from the time I was in the third grade I was going to hell. You know, so I, you know, I don't want nothing to do with this. But they, it, for some reason it registered. i got to find God in order to, in order to get sober. And so what I did is I'm in the Salvation Army, and there was like 50 to 100 guys in there, or however many there was, and I walked from bunk to bunk, and I seen people that were reading spiritual books, reading literature, and I asked them what they believed, and I asked them what particular brand of religion they 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 were prescribed to, and you know I asked them what it was about, and what I ended up doing was taking a piece from this one, and a piece from that one, and a piece from this one, and I put all the principles together and took away the deity, and the principles became my higher power at that point. Um, and it gave me a starting place, you know. It says that if, um, you know, if if you're willing to believe, and, and at that point I was, you know, at that point I was pretty mangled. But um, and 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 my mother, my mother's boyfriend or husband or whoever he was at the time, um, started bringing me to meetings, and I started to see that there was other ways to live other than what I knew, you know. Because prior to coming to New Jersey, I thought it was perfectly normal to get married, have kids, smoke dope, grow old, hang out on the porch with a beer and a bong, and you know this is this is what a seventy-year-old person does. You know, um, you know it, it was not abnormal. And here, people were doing something different, and I started to see that there was another way. I started my perception started to change a little bit, and. Um, 
I went to meetings and everybody said you gotta, you know, you gotta share about these reservations you got. You can't have any reservations. And I did. You know, um, I'm a stone cold pothead. You know, if everything else disappeared off the planet, I would have been cool smoking weed. And I never had any external problems as a result of it. And I shared about this. You know, and I shared about this and I shared about this and I shared my way right out the door. Because I constantly kept it fresh in my mind. You know, um, nobody ever told me to share about it and get rid of it. You know, they just said, keep sharing about it. Well, I did. <laughs> um, but the one thing that was said to me early on was, uh, don't drink and go to meetings. But if you do drink, go to a meeting anyway. You know, so I never stopped going to meetings. You know, I'd smoke dope in the morning and go to a meeting at night. You know, and I'd uh, find people in the rooms that got high. You know. And we'd go out the back door and smoke a joint out back and come in for the meeting. You know, um, I did this for a good year and a half. And I'd share, you know. <laughs> I, I've been around. I know the solutions. I know the answer. I know all the slogans and the catchphrases and all this shit. You know, I ha what happened, my mind was so twisted at that point that I truly, honestly, Give me a stack of Bibles, I'll swear to it. I didn't believe I relapsed. Because I have a desire not to drink. And pot is not a drug. It's a natural herb. God gave it to us. I'm going to be a Rastafarian and I'm going to be spiritual. Okay? I'm going to go that route and I'm going to, it'll work for me. You know? And I truly believe this at this point. You know? <laughs> the guilt got me. You know? Because I guess I must have heard it somewhere that you're not supposed to smoke weed and go to meetings and share and, you know, and try and 12-step people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but again, this, this perception on, uh, on, uh, on not relapsing was there. So I needed to go out and drink so that I could come back to the rooms and say I'm coming back. You know, because I never relapsed. I never went out. You know, I kept going to meetings and I didn't pick up alcohol. I picked up booze and I couldn't put it down. I picked it up thinking I'll go back tomorrow. I'll drink tonight and I'll come back and I'll say I relapsed. I'm back. You know what? I couldn't get back. I could not put it down. For about two years, I went to meetings every single day and I couldn't put together more than a week. Um... Most of the time, it was about two days. You know, and the only way I can describe it is I felt like a hollowed out egg. That if you touched me, I'd shatter. I'd just crumble to a million pieces. You know, um, that, that unmanageability was just so, it was, it was vivid. It was vivid. Um, I even tried writing an inventory at that point, you know, and, Maybe this will fix it, you know, because I didn't know anything about it. Nobody had ever told me to work the steps. They said, just keep coming back. Make 90 and 90. Get a home group. Get a bunch of phone numbers. Get a sponsor. Call your sponsor. Call your network. And I did all this stuff. I made probably uh, 180, 200 and something meetings in 90 days. I was making a minimum of three meetings a day, sometimes four, and still drinking. You know, yeah, yuck. <laughs> and they're telling me you don't want it bad enough. You know, 
you know, what do I got to do here, you know? So for two years, I was in and out and in and out. And I got to the point where I just stopped raising my hand. I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't raise my hand and say, I'm coming back. Even the last time that I got sober, I didn't raise my hand. I didn't, I damn near didn't celebrate my 90 days because I wasn't sure, you know? It was an old guy, a guy named Bill Adams. He's died a few years back. Actually, died about nine years ago. Um, and he used to uh, he used to bring people up from Bayonne to the Carney Candlelight Saturday night meeting, and uh, and he used to share about uh, reading the Big Book to newcomers and dragging them off the street, putting them on his couch, reading the book to them, and. I had no idea what he was talking about because all the big book meetings I had ever been to and anything that was ever referred to the big book was a bunch of stories. You know, Nobody ever pointed out that it was a text. Nobody ever said there was instructions. It was all about stories. And you know, you read the book and you identify with the feelings and you identify with the jaywalker and you know, that kind of stuff. And Bill used to say this and, and it must have stuck with me you know, um, because... The last time that I came back, I picked that book up, and I opened it up, and I, and I started to read it, and it clicked. Something made sense for the first time in two and a half years. Something made sense. There was some kind of hope in there. And, and to be honest, I don't know what it was. It was just something. It was a moment of clarity. It was a moment of, of seeing the truth. And um, at that particular point, I had no guidance um, I told my sponsor I, I needed to write a four-step. And he goes, he goes, no, you're not ready for a four-step. You'll drink if you write a four-step. And I said, I've been coming here for two years, drinking every day. What the fuck does it matter? You know, what, what could it hurt me? What could it hurt me? You know, and I proceeded to break out a little memo notebook and carried it in my pocket for like two and a half weeks oozing and, uh, and wanted to kill everybody in sight. And I had like 150, 180 resentments, you know, because I, for two weeks, I'd write down names, and that's all I'd do is write down, I hate this one, and I hate that one, and I'm, you know. And um, and what I what I would do at night is I was actually taking care of, I was house-sitting um, for this guy, Mark. He was in rehab, and I offered to clean his house while he was in rehab, and I could crash there as a result of it till he got out. You know, I had to get rid of all the needles and all the stuff and everything, and and I could crash at his house. And what I would do is I would uh, I would review my day every night, and I'd look at where I screwed up, and I'd ask myself, Am I willing to have God remove this? And I say, Hmm, yeah, this one, yeah, yeah, this one, nah, but this one, yeah, okay, God, please remove this. You know, so I was doing a 10 step. I was doing an 11 step. I was doing six and seven. I was doing it all ass backwards, but I was doing it. You know, um, in the middle of writing this this really shabby inventory, and I bring this three column inventory because I seen the book and I looked at the picture, and I seen a three column inventory. So I wrote a three column inventory, and I brought this to my sponsor and I start sharing it with him, and he's pointing stuff out to me. You know, and and for the first time in my life, I wasn't the biggest piece of shit on the planet, and I wasn't a nice guy who drank too much. You know, I was somewhere in the middle. You know, I found some balance for the first time. Um, 
I moved again. Um, I've moved like six times since I've been sober. Um, but uh, I moved. It was my first year of recovery. Um, oh, wait. No, let me back up, though. I was about... My first two months... My first two months back, I wanted to drink all day, every day, 24-7, constantly. And I'm running to meetings, and I'm grabbing this new guy. And, and you know, my first sponsor did save my life. And the first, what he said to me is I call him about some stuff that's going on in my life. I can't even remember what it was now. You know, and he's like, Adam, you know what to do. You've been around long enough. Grab a drunk. And I was like, but I only got two months. He goes, so? He goes, grab somebody with a month. You know, grab somebody with a day. Doesn't matter. At that moment, my house became AA Central. And some people can attest to this. It still is today. You know, it's never changed. Um, from that moment, it, well, it has changed. It's gotten a little healthier. But in that first year, we had an amp set up in the living room. We had live music. You know, we, 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 we were part of the Alcathon for Christmas in Kearney. We'd basically go to the meeting, grab the wet ones and the guys who were stinking and hungry and everything, bring them back to the house, give them a shower, feed them, bring them back to the meeting. You know, it was, it was AA Central, you know. And the only requirement for membership was a desire to stop drinking. Anybody was allowed in our house, you know. Um, since my children have been born, we've kind of modified that rule a little bit. But back then, that's the way it was. I didn't care if you were wet. As long as you wanted to get sober, you were allowed in my house. You know. And I've had some bad shit happen in my house. But you know what? It's all right because it kept me alive. You know. But somewhere in the, about my first year or so, I got offered a job with the Board of Education in New York. And uh, I didn't want to do it. You know. I'm a... I, I do wood floors and I love my job and at that point I was doing that and I was learning the trade and I was really digging it and people are telling me, oh, you're crazy, you know, this is a union job, you got to take it, blah, 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 you know, benefits and the whole deal. And I was like, all right, whatever, you know, I'll give it a shot. And uh, this honesty thing that we're supposed to do here in this program uh, kind of bit me in the ass because I'm a convicted felon and... I was honest, and I made it to my 89 days of trial with the Board of Education, and then they fired me, and I'm trapped in Staten Island. It's funny because for the, for the three months, or almost three months, I'm living in New Jersey, but staying in Staten Island at a friend's house during the week coming home, and we finally find an apartment, we get the U-Haul, and the night before we're supposed to leave, I get the call and say I'm fired. So I moved to Staten Island with no job, barely know anybody, and uh, you know what? It was okay. It was okay because I knew something was going down. I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know I was going to get fired, but I, you know, I had, they ran my prints and they did my thing, and, and all, I knew this was coming down, and I was praying on a daily basis, God, please help me to accept whatever happens. Not what I want, you know, because what I want at that particular moment was to keep my job, you know. But in reality, I was I was in a much better place by losing it because I ended up working with a guy in recovery over there. I got hooked up into the meetings over there, and um, I found a job doing floors. Taught me a whole new angle of the trade, you know. So when I did eventually come back to New Jersey, I was ahead of the game, you know. But um, I met some people over there that were doing a 
doing house meetings. And they were doing big book studies out of their house. And um, I proceeded to go through the book with somebody. And we made it to about the third step. And he drank. So, but you know what? That doesn't matter because what I did, what happened with that experience was I learned how to read this book. I learned how to transmit this information. You know, because prior to that, I was doing it all whichever way. You know, I didn't know how this book was intended to be done. I didn't know how the work was intended to be done. And um, and I was doing the best I could, but I could have been more effective. And I learned that from this guy. And ultimately, when I came back to New Jersey, I was pretty much ostracized from my home group because they didn't want to hear about this sick hippie, you know, no shoe wearing, you know, tie-dye wearing, you know, freak walking into the meetings talking about God. You know, when, you know, just a year or two ago, I was, you know, in and out and in and out and in and out, and they couldn't help me. You know, I found a solution somewhere else. And it was right there in the meeting, but it, they didn't have it. And I walk in there, and plus I was also a rabid thumper, and um, which didn't help at all. But I was pretty much ostracized from this meeting. Nobody wanted to hear anything from me. You know, people were people were pushing newcomers away from me because they were saying stay away from him he's a fanatic you know um, so what I what what I had to do and I couldn't find I, I, I didn't have anybody no network of people to bounce my stuff off of because every, every time I go with a problem they say oh just keep coming back it's like I need a solution I'm here to get a solution not to hear keep coming back you know so what I did is I grabbed the sickest drunk in the room and I brought him back to my house and that's where it started. And I just went from meeting to meeting to meeting, finding the chronic relapsers, finding the people who could not get it. And I kept bringing them back to my house. And you know what? I don't think any of them are sober today, but I am. You know. Um, and to be honest, I, I don't like that whole selfish angle of it. I really don't think that's a good thing. But you know what? It's true. It worked. You know. I wish they would have gotten sober. You know, I really wanted him to, and it was I wasn't doing it with that in mind to keep me sober. But um, I became involved in a clubhouse over in Clifton, and uh, that's where I met Mike. Um, well, actually, right around that time, and um, we were trying to bring a message of recovery to this place, and. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think clubhouses have a tendency to be breeding grounds for really, really, really bad therapy. You know, um, not all of them, but, you know, the ones that I've been to um, can be really harsh. And this, this was one of them. You know, this was one of them. Nobody wanted to hear a solution. You know, we'd have, we'd have these, we'd try and set up these workshops and like three people would come. You know, it was it was horrible. So we set up the dances. You know, <laughs> you know, because that's you got three hundred coming to a dance. Three people come to a recovery workshop. Three hundred come to a dance. What are we gonna do? But at this at this dance, yeah, at this dance, I had I had the set aside prayer posted to the wall, and um, just because it was a meeting house. And this girl Meg, some of you know her, seen it. And she's like, I know that. And I was like, my ears jumped right up because that's the Big Book Thumper secret handshake. It really is. 
you know. And I was like, wow, you know, somebody else who knows this, you know. And I was like, where'd you hear that? Where'd you hear that? And she's like, oh, you got to go to this meeting. It's on Tuesday night. It's up in Bernersville. And I was like, yeah, give me directions. The following Tuesday, I was there, you know, because I'd been running around the rooms of AA for four years, not having a fellowship, not having a home group, not having anybody that I could really, truly bounce shit off of. You know, I had a couple guys here and there, you know, spread around, but nobody that I could go to, you know, constantly. And um, I walk into this meeting, and uh, I believe Cass was speaking. And um, and I met who, the guy who became my sponsor at that point. Um, and it was the first person I ever met that had any considerable time, you know, that was doing the steps. And it was it was amazing to me. It just, you know, blew me away because even the guys in Staten Island, none of them had more than two years. You know, um, and they were all the same as me. You know, we're all pretty much brand new at this, doing this deal. And I walk into this meeting, and this guy's celebrating at the end of the month or something, 22 years or something. I was like, wow, cool. You know, somebody with life experience and the steps. You know, this is great. Um, so I asked him to be my sponsor. And over the next couple years, you know, he helped me along this path. Um, Fair warning to anybody new to the steps, because I made a really, really, really bad mistake. What this guy said to me was, um, he says, throw out everything you think you know, and we're going to start with something new. You know, And so I did. You know, guy's got 22 years, and he's doing the steps, and okay, cool. You know, so I become this blank slate, you know, and it's like, feed me, you know. But what happened was, is I threw away all the good shit that I knew and all the good stuff that was working for me for almost five years. You know, all the stuff that worked got thrown out along with the stuff that didn't. And what I was supposed to do was learn the new stuff and then incorporate the old stuff with the new stuff and find a balance and find out who I was instead of being a clone, you know. And, and it took me a lot of pain to realize that because, you know, I... Went through a new process of the inventory, and I did another fifth step, and you know I did I did some sort of I don't remember which exercise it was at the time, six and seven step. It was I had unbelievable experience with the six six and seven step that year or that one of those years in there, and um, I made amends for all that current stuff, and now I'm I'm trying to live this deal, but I'm not feeling it, you know. I'm listening to everybody up at the podium, and they're all sounding great, and they, life is wonderful, life is beautiful, and I feel like crap. You know, what's wrong with me? You know, what's wrong? And and it was two things. One, I was judging everybody's, you know, judging my insides by everybody's outsides, you know, because people want to sound good up here, you know. And... and <clears throat> Over the past couple of years, I've made it clear that I am not well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just for that new guy who, who who hears this perfect friggin' message from the podium, we're human. You know, we have our bad days, we have our good days, we have our great days, we have our horrible days. Saturday was a friggin' horrible day for me. You know, we're human. But um, I started ba- looking at, I started judging my recovery based on this. Plus. On the other side of it, I had thrown thrown away a lot of good stuff, you know. 
a lot of stuff that was really beneficial to me. And what had happened is somewhere between here and here, it didn't connect. You know, and I'm going through the motions. I'm doing the work. I'm doing prayer meditation on a daily basis. I'm going down the list. I got all the 12 questions and I'm checking everything off and I'm, I'm doing this shit by the numbers and it ain't working. Something's wrong. You know, and what I came to realize was that I was relying on the process. I was dependent upon the steps. I was dependent upon the book. I was dependent upon, you know, I wasn't dependent upon God. Everything but God. And um, and it damn near killed me. About three, three years ago, I guess it was. Um, was it about three years ago? Yeah. Um, it was uh, the end of August. The end of August, and I'm sitting in front of my computer, and my wife walks in, and she says, I want a divorce. And I was like, what? Where did this come from? I had no idea. I was totally clueless. I really was. I knew we were fighting, but I was clueless that it was like this. And I was like, holy shit, what just happened? And um, I proceeded to do a nightly review, and my sponsor came up. Um, my wife came up. And something else. I don't remember what it was. But there was four four names on this resentment inventory. So I figured I might as well go through the process here. And I went through another round through the steps. But it also at the time, you know, that open AA or that, that AA central house, that evolved into a book study pretty much once a week um, for the past eight years. And I was doing one at that time. And we, we were just starting it. And that first week, I'd break out my book with all its highlighter notes and all the little dates on it. And, you know, after going to one of Bill's workshops with all the history, it's got to be exact. And i got to transmit the perfect message. You know what I said? Put that book aside and I grabbed a brand new book. No marks in it whatsoever. I'm going to use this. You know. Um, and I read this book. And I read it to the people that, that were in my house. And I talked about my week. And I talked about how this book works in my life this week. With all this shit going on in my life. With my life collapsing. You know, everything that I thought was important to me was just getting stripped away and how this works and um, it was the most powerful experience I've ever had in my life you know because it was new it was alive it was you know yeah it's a textbook but it's also more you know it, it's got a life of its own it, you can read it one day and see one thing and read it another day and it's something totally different you know um, and it's just it was it was, I, I just can't, I, it's hard to describe, you know. But by throwing away those highlighter notes and going with the blank pages, and, and, and I was able to be more honest. I was able to be more truthful and more in the sense of experience, not in, uh, how is it, uh, abstinence as opposed to experience. It was more about, it wasn't about the method anymore. It wasn't about the stuff, it was about the experience. And I went through the I went through the process. I had four resentments. I had like twenty eight fears, you know, based off four resentments. Yeah, and I thought I was okay just a couple weeks before. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I did my fifth step. Um, I proceeded to make some amends, um, and 
something happened. I don't know. I got to this place where I went home one night. I was crashing at a friend of mine's house in Summit, and because uh, me and my me and my wife had separated at that point, and I was really pissed off at AA, and I didn't want to go back. And you know, because it, it was it was tough because me and her our our lives were so intertwined. You know, it's like there was. That's how I met Chris Raymer. It's because I called Chris to deal with this stuff because there was nobody here that wasn't connected. You know, it was scary. And, um, but I, I, I hated AA. I went home and I, I got quiet and I wanted to get out of this place. And all of a sudden, this prayer came to mind. And um, it was God, please help me to be unattached to that which I think I am. You know, I'm not attached to being a father. I'm not attached to being a husband. I'm not attached to being a sponsor. I'm not attached to being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. These are just roles I play on any given day. What I really am is a child of God. I have no idea where it came from. I know where it came. It came from God. But it didn't come, you know, it came off my pen. It was because I was open to it. You know, I was telling a guy tonight, he's trying to think his way through this unmanageability exercise. And I was like, dude, it's not about that. Shut down the brain. Let the pen flow. Let God go through you and do this. You know, because this this stuff ain't about the method. It's about the spirit. You know. And it's... When that prayer sunk into me, when that when that belief, and I started to practice that, all this stuff out here didn't matter so much anymore. Yeah, I was still concerned about it. I still wanted to get back with my wife, but you know what? If she didn't want to, okay. You know, I knew I was still going to be a father, you know. All those fears attached to, you know, all, all those fears attached to that weren't there anymore, you know. The AA thing, AA is going to do what it's going to do. I'm just a member. You know, I lost that. I got to fix everything. I got to change everything because I was no longer dependent upon how other people viewed me. You know, I wasn't dependent upon how I was dealing with these particular areas because all that mattered was me and God. And um, it's it was it was a, it was a very very profound experience for me because I'm really up here way too often you know and I at that moment or at that particular period of my life I wasn't you know and I strive to get back there on a regular basis you know and and I I'm getting I'm getting there I do get there and it, and it, and it's a I was probably there for like the past two minutes you know it's it's that's good you know I feel it but um so was I sequential at all? Um, where am I at? <laughs> My tenth step. My tenth step. I don't write. You know, if I have issue, I write. But on on any given day, I don't always write. Um, I stop. You know, if shit goes sideways during my day, I stop. I pause. I not think. I think out the fear inventory. You know, I, I, I don't sit and write it down, but I, I go through the fear inventory in my head. Um, I ask God to remove the fear. If the fear continues, I call somebody, you know. 
if I've done harm, I try to make amends right then and there because I don't want to carry it over. I don't want to make amends anymore. You know, I'm tired of making amends. Um, I review my day at night. I don't always sit down and write it out. I'd probably be a little better off if I did. It came up on my most current four-step that I don't do that enough. Um, but what I do find that is, if I uh, if I have a press, if I have an issue during the course of my day, if it continues, you know, if it's here today and it's here tomorrow and it's here the next, I deal with it. I write it out. I go through the motions of the method, you know, because I go back to my basics. I go back to my roots. Um, one of the things, though, I'm uh, I'm going to actually. I started last night or the night before. Um, I started going back into the consistency. That's the word. It's not rigid. You know, I need to get rid of that word rigid because I believe that the rigidity of it, for a long time I believed the rigidity of the steps and the method that I used to know it was what caused it. I know it's not true, but the fear tells me it is. And so it keeps me from doing it. And uh, the other day the word consistency was substituted for rigidity. And um, and I've started to come at this from a different angle. Um, I'm starting to write out my stuff again. Um, meditation and prayer. I pray every day. Um, I'm actually fortunate because I don't deal with people very often during the day. You know, I deal with customers and such, but I pretty much work in my head because I, I sand floors, I put on the headphones, and the world goes away. And what's left is me and God. You know, and I get to pray all day long, and and some days I don't. You know, some days I crank up the tunes and I, you know, I just put the little headphones inside my headphones. But um, when I'm not well, or when I am well, you know, when I'm not well and when I am well, I talk to God all day long, and it makes my day better. Um, when I have any pressing decisions to make in my life. Um, I use Oxford Group meditation because that's what I learned early on, and I know it works. You know, anytime I've made a major decision in my life, I've used the four absolutes. I've used the free flow writing exercise and the four absolutes, and bouncing it off somebody. You know, unless it came up four. You know, four out of four is great, um, and I've used that with every single major decision I've 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 made over the over the past ten years now. Actually, I learned it at eight years. But um, the 12th step, carrying this message, um, I find that we live in an area that's actually, it's awesome, it's growing, it's changing, and it, it is starting to be receptive. But for the my experience, I still have that baggage of being in the Carney group and being told I'd drink if I did the steps. And, you know, being labeled a fanatic and a Nazi and all kinds of shit like that. I left Bernardsville after about three years or so. And um, and what I did was I went to nothing but, quote-unquote, fellowship-oriented meetings. You know, the don't drink and go to meetings kind of meetings. Because in my mind at that time was, what am I doing? Am I preaching to the choir or am I carrying the message? You know, so I went back to the trenches. I went back where the people needed the message. You know, back where the people are saying, "Just don't drink and go to meetings. You'll be okay." 
you know, and I started carrying this message there. And in the first couple of weeks, you know, I got labeled a fanatic and a Nazi and a thumper and all. I had to step back. I was like, what am I doing here? You know, how can I carry this message to people who don't necessarily want to hear it? You know, they want the solution. But what you got to do is you go into a meeting and you don't use the word big book. Key. Number one, don't use the word big book. Use the word literature. The literature. You don't use the word steps. You use the word program or process. Okay? This is, this is manipulation 101 here. <laughs> I did this for two years. I went into quote-unquote dark tunnel meetings. I don't use that word very much anymore, but, you know, just so you know where I'm going. I went to these meetings constantly, and I tried to carry the message. And you know what? I was able to do that. I was able to carry the message there, you know, because I just eliminate a couple key words. Because as soon as somebody says, here's the word big book, they shut down. Because all of a sudden they've got all those ideas about those about me being a fanatic and a Nazi because I was, you know, I'm the guy who walked into the 12 and 12 meeting with my big book in my hand. We're on the second step, so I open up We Agnostics and I start pointing out where they're doing it wrong. You know, I was a fanatic. I was a, I was a step Nazi. You know, I, I freely admit this. You know. But you know what? I was so on fire. I was so excited that I found this solution after damn near dying in the fellowship, you know. Um, so I have to remember that, you know. I've helped create this. I've helped create this antagonism that the fellowship has towards me, you know. So what I do is I try to ease it in there, and they don't even know it, you know. I learned it from my wife. She used to do it all the time. I don't know how she did it. You know, she used to walk in there. She'd be all soft-spoken and bring them back to the house, and then beat them over the head with the book. You know, it was. <laughs> it's much more effective. You know, take a kindly, tolerant view. You know, what I also found out over those couple of years is, I don't need to give this message to everybody. There's people in the fellowship who are happy. Who am I to screw that? You know, who am I? Who am I to mess with their stuff just because they're not doing it the way I think they should? You know, if he's happy, why mess with him? You know, if he's not, I'm more than willing to help. You know, I also learned that I had to speak about alcoholics like me, not alcoholics like you. You know, alcoholics like me because I'm the, I'm I'm a twisted one. You know, you know I I didn't drink for a long period of time, but when I drank. I did it to the extreme. You know, my my role models were the winos under the bridge. That's who I aspired to be. You know, I used to see those commercials about the guy who said he n never dreamed of being a dope fan when he grew up. Well, I did. You know, these were the guys that I aspired to be like. You know, hey, they were 50, 60 years old. You know, they were alive. I thought I was going to die. You know, I'm amazed. I just had a birthday this week. You know, I never thought I'd live. I really didn't think I'd live. You know, I don't know how old I am, but <laughs> got it. yeah, got to be like thirty-five, right? Yeah. <coughs> September fifth. <laughs> My sobriety date is September sixth. You know, yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting month. 
No wonder I had a wacky Saturday, you know. Um, all this stuff comes down all at once. And it's just back to carrying this message, you know. I'm a fundamentalist. I believe in what this what this book says, you know. For me, maybe not for you. And that's what I need to remember, you know. I don't need to shove this down somebody's throat anymore. You know. I felt I needed two years ago. You know, everybody's got to have this because you know what? I got to save AA. You know, I found that out in my fear inventories. AA is going to fall apart, and I'm not going to have nowhere to go if I don't shove this down somebody's throat and get everybody doing it right. You know, I'm that powerful. Yeah. Where's God in all this? Because that's what this is all about. You know, and I, and I like that what you said. Is it, is it about abstinence or spirit? Well, I changed it today. Is it about the method or is it about the spirit? You know, because it is a living, breathing thing. Practicing these principles in all our affairs, real quick. How can I do that? Um, there was a period in my uh, in my recovery where I uh, wasn't capable of making very many meetings at all. Very busy. I was doing side work. I had a day job. You know, I was doing all kinds of stuff. And what I found I needed to do was go back to what the original manuscript said. Having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action, we carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and practice these principles. Well, what is this message? This message is not about not drinking. This is not a message about, you know, coming to AA meetings. This is a message of dependence and reliance upon God. And I can share that with anybody, if they'll listen. You know, if they want to hear it. So when I walk into a house and I go to sand your floors, if I see a meditation book in the bathroom, I'm going to bring it up over coffee. You know, I'm going to drop some lines. I'm going to drop some statements. I don't have to say I'm in AA, but I can talk about God. If I see a serenity prayer hanging from the wall, and I've done this because I can't make, at times I've not been able to make meetings. Where do I get my meeting? I got it sit, having coffee with Mrs. Murphy while I'm doing her kitchen floor. You know, and it, and you know what? It works. It works. Granted, it's much better to sit across the kitchen table with another drunk, but when one's not available, I can carry this message to anybody. You know, and I can live this program out there. You know. I'd much rather I'd much rather sound like an asshole in here and be good out there than to sound great in here and be an asshole out there. You know. Um, that's just been my experience. And uh, I want to thank you guys for having me here, and that's all I got. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.